and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 116. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, today we do have a very special episode coming up for you. We've actually got a comp prep roundtable. And joining us on this roundtable is Alex Thomas, Joey Cantlin, and Kyle Weber. Now, I'm sure some of you would definitely recognize these big names. So Alex Thomas, many of you would know him as the president of Sports Nutrition Australia. And Joey and Kyle are both two of the most renowned top physique and bodybuilding coaches here in the country. So thank you so much for joining us today, guys. Thanks for having us. What a, what a wrap up. That's the best. I, I, you know, it's, it's great when you hear someone really put it into, into practice, considering that bodybuilding has gotten such a, uh, a popularity growing now. You know, it's, a, it's, it's funny to think back then. So thank you, Tiara. My pleasure. Yeah, it's awesome to finally have our first roundtable. So we're very excited for it. But before we get into the nit and grit of the episode, uh, we just wanted you guys to quickly give us your 10 second introduction. And uh, we'll start off with Alex. I was going to say shot not first, but anyway. <laughs> and also shout out to Brandon Kempter. Thanks for joining us at the roundtable. He's here in spirit. Yeah, he's here in spirit. Can't help it. 10 seconds up, bro. <laughs> that's it that's my intro uh no I, do this thing. I run this thing called the sports nutrition association uh we're in a few countries and regions we look at establishing and standardizing best practice in sports nutrition awesome cool what about you kyle alex doesn't just run this thing he runs a national accredited governing body for ensuring that sports nutritionists are able to give uh proper meal plans and advice to people and, and it is a, it's a really awesome thing that you're doing alex so i love being involved with it I, i've been involved with bodybuilding and prep coaching for the last 10 years now um and i'm branching out into uh behavioral science and psychology and it's been a really interesting uh transition to see some of the problems and the contraindications that come up through bodybuilding and sport and within physique coaching um and seeing how they can be uh fixed up and 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 I guess prevented from happening in the future. You know, we're going to share some of our own personal journeys and some horror stories that we've seen throughout today. Um, and I hope that everyone get a piece of it. Awesome. Yeah, I think every competitor and coach knows the, the psychological impact that competing can have. So it's a kind of an invaluable area that I think will only get bigger. Moving on to Joey then, give us your rundown. Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, I'm not going to follow follow that up as, as well as Cole, but um, I'm Joey on a... Contest prep coach from uh, Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. Yeah, I've been doing this for about eight years. So, yeah, that, that's me. I'm just a comp prep coach from Australia. Joey's <laughs> a very, very good comp prep coach from Australia that has prepped I'll, I'll let you, hundreds I'll let of winning competitors. So give yourself a bit more of a wrap as well, bro. I'll let you. You need to know how many pro, pro, pro clients, pro card clients you've got as well, mate. That's what you need to be saying. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll let you, I'll let you guys my tie. I won't do that myself, but uh-huh. that's just who I am. What I do. Yeah, man. All good. So today we do have a round table and because we all love bodybuilding, we will be discussing everything related to bodybuilding and bodybuilding definitely has a lot of different phases. As we know, we have the off season or as many competitors are calling it now, the improvement season. We have the pre-prep phase. We have the competition preparation itself. We have peak week and we also have the post-competition recovery phase. So there's a lot to dig into here. What season? What what phase are we going to chat about? Yeah, where does it officially start? Let's yeah. hope it doesn't start in recovery. <laughs> well, I think it's, like, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg. Where which which came first? Like, does 
the pre-prep phase come first or does the off-season come first or mm. does it start in the recovery phase? But I'd I, say we're all evidence-based, so let's hope that we start in the off-season or the, in the improvement season. Yeah, I, I think that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's cool. I think before we get into it, we just wanted to outline that Alex actually will be helping us co-host today. So um, thanks for joining us. <laughs> thanks, babe. This is going to feature in snippets of um, SNA's The Sports Nutritionist Podcast as well. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, let's start with the off-season then. Great. Who wants to begin? Uh, not Joey, me. Joey, Joey, this is your area, mate. So, I, I, okay. So the structure that we're going to go with is we're going to like, just, we're going to go horror stories first. So have, have we heard of any oh, like yeah, crazy? Out- yeah. Right. So crazy outlandish things. And then we're going to say things that we really like uh, based on the evidence or anything like that. So that's our second sort of like segment. And then the third thing is where the evidence or the general consensus for the mean of the evidence hasn't necessarily succeeded and where you've had to apply critical thinking with other evidence-based principles to actually elicit a result. Mm. So there are three sort of themes. So like horror stories first, what what are some crazy, or just some crazy things that you've heard about people doing in the off season um, that you're like, Hey, avoid that. It it doesn't work. Like can we, can we myth bust a few things? Awesome. Yeah. Let's, uh, Joey, let's hear it. I think the most common one, I I wouldn't call it a horror story. I'd say it's just like more of a general thing that I see quite frequently. It's it's, it's still so common. And I like, I still don't know why it is because we have such a large body of evidence around muscle gain and that kind of thing is people just like overeating to the nth degree and putting on 15 to 20 kilos just to add one to two kilos of muscle. And not realizing that eventually they're going to have to diet that off to get shredded for the next show. And when you put on that much body fat in the off season, you're going to have to diet for likely twice as long because that's a lot of weight to pull off. Thus, you you probably end up completely mitigating that one to two kilos of muscle that you put on. So I would say that's common to see. I wouldn't call it a horror story, but it is something that I would consider stupid and reckless in the off season that people need to... Uh, address or stop doing to become a better bodybuilder it, w- it would improve their starting point and ultimately improve their condition on stage because they would have more muscle they'd have a much easier time getting leaner which means they'd have a much easier time preserving more muscle mass and obviously the goal of a bodybuilder is to have as as little amount of fat on you and as much muscle as possible and getting way too big in your off season thinking that it's going to put on more muscle is not conducive to that end result at all mm. Yeah, not, not to mention as well that when we create fat cells, so when we create new body fat, mm-hmm. fat cells don't go away, unlike. So you, you're kind of stuck with them and then you're left with potentially loose skin as well. And at the end of the day, it's an aesthetic sport. So that those are important considerations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can, you can absolutely increase the number of fat cells, but you, you cannot decrease the amount you have. So the, if you increase the amount of fat cells that you have, at a certain period of time in your life, your potential to have a higher body fat percentage gets higher, which mm-hmm. no doubt nobody wants. So why do you guys think that that is still prevalent given that there is more of an evidence base now? Why are people still under the impression that they do need to dirty bulk or they do need to gain substantial amounts of weight when realistically in natural bodybuilding, year after year, you might only get on stage a few hundred grams heavier, maybe one kilogram heavier, or you might even end up at the same stage weight. Mm. Um, I'm a cynic. Do you want to know my, what my two cents is? Of course. People 
shouldn't be competing who like are compete people are competing who shouldn't be competing they're psychologically not ready for it and they don't look at they don't take their recovery or their improvement season seriously mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think and, and then i think it's a, i think it's just a confirmation bias in, uh justification and self-rationalization that they're like oh it, you know it's, it's how they i guess feel good about themselves and justify it to themselves that what mm. they're doing is positive. We never want to say like, it's human nature, right? We never want to say, Oh, this program that I'm running is so shit right now. It's not getting me any results and it's actually hindering my results. Right. Yeah. For some people that is the case, right? Yeah. I think they don't want to, some people don't want to face the fact that it, in a good year, maybe it is only two kilos of muscle gain and, and they feel like, Oh, but if I gain 10 kilos this year, at least I might be able to feel a little bit better about it. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny. What do you reckon, Kyle? You know what, guys? I, I was thinking about it when you asked the question, Jack, about uh, some of the horror stories. And honestly, I've seen that many horror stories now that I can't even put it down to an individual one to highlight it because it's so common. I think what the biggest horror story is about an off-season is that people can't be happy doing what they're doing without looking competition-ready all the time. I think that's mm-hmm. a really, really scary thing, that we can't be happy with it and content within our bodies without needing to strive towards something all the time and, and constantly needing to reach towards something that we don't even know what the end result is going to be like. And, and it ties in really well with what you just said, Alex, around uh, people not being ready for a prep. If, if, if you're not ready to put yourself into a position to be happy with what you're doing, uh, whether your calories are high, whether your body fat is high, whether your body's low, whether your calories are low, it really doesn't matter. You need to be able to sort that kind of stuff out first. And what we what we see through an off-season, I would argue that a vast majority of, of people that get into bodybuilding that don't have a, a previous competitive sporting background in some sense are doing it purely from the base of wanting to improve their image from a, a negative space. They're wanting to change something and, and, and fix something about themselves. And although that can be a really, really positive thing, it's great to be able to change that kind of stuff. If you're doing it because you're feeling as though how you are is not enough, then it's just setting yourself up for further failure. That's heavy. That's, that's heavy. <laughs> I mean, I can turn it down if you want me to. Like, people start wrong and then, then, then yeah, we're all good. <laughs> I, 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 total, I totally agree with you, Kyle. I mean, people, people get such a, um, an emotional t- attachment to the way they look. And, you know, maybe getting, getting competition lean for a bodybuilding show further enhances that. And it, it's, it's obviously not healthy for those types of people. But I guess that goes back to the point that Alex said is there are a lot of people doing competitions that, aren't psychologically ready or shouldn't shouldn't necessarily be doing competition so i think it that's the head of the snake and then you pretty much nailed it from there down and let me and let me just say this as well like any, anyone that's listening I don't want it to sound elitist like you know, you guys are doing the wrong thing we haven't every single one of us has engaged in a prep at some point Mm. Uh, every single one of us has gone through the process of where we want to change something about ourselves. Alex, you've been really competitive with sport. You've gone through a prep before as well. Joey, Jack, Tiara, myself, we've all competed at some level and we've all experienced different levels of those psychological preparedness aspects of whether we are ready, whether we're not. And it messes with everybody's head. So there's nothing wrong with you if you're hearing this and thinking that, oh my God, I, like this is me, I shouldn't be prepping. It's just a, a bit of a, a, a light bulb moment to realize that this is a part of the process. And while we've got the program going on, a, a big a big component of this is getting an understanding about 
where you are in that preparedness phase and, and how you can spot different things so that you can better prepare yourself and, and better get yourself ready. Because what, what you'll feel during your prep is very normal. And, and we understand and accept that everyone's going to go through these different phases of, of feeling a little bit off um, and, and wanting to change bits about themselves and not having a positive image to start with. So we want to make sure that the, the sport can grow in a positive way because it's given a really positive aspect to a lot of our lives. Hey guys, just a reminder that we don't just coach physique athletes, but we do coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. Therefore, if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, you can always head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com or alternatively, click the link in the show notes below. And this is just me thinking out loud, right? Could be completely wrong. Probably am, but... um. It's like it's like we know based on stage photos of, of, win, of winners and losers, right? Mister Empirical Pragmatism here. We know based on stage photos, winners versus losers, right? Like the leanest person typically wins, and so we know that that's the standard that we need to aim for, and that we have an image in our mind for what we need to aim for for our prep. But when was the last time that like competitors or athletes, physique competitors and athletes, had? a gold standard in their mind for what they need to aim for in terms of how their body should look in an off season. Right. Mm. So it's like, Oh, mm. I know that I'm really on point at this point. This is the goal for me. And I would say, you know, again, there's no evidence, but like my hypothesis would be like nine out of 10 or 19 out of 20 would be, would have none of that. Or if they did have it, it would be wrong. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. People, I find like, this is something that I see a lot is that people don't, they just don't seem to care about their starting point anymore. Well, not anymore, but there are just so many people who just don't care. They only care what they like on stage. I'm like, hey, every step of the process plugs into the next step of the process. So how you look at the start of your prep absolutely matters because it changes the way in which you approach your prep, which means you could look better or you could look worse. Some people end up throwing themselves in the deep end before they, before they even start swimming. Mm. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about what is some of the best advice we can give athletes for their off season to really maximize their chances of having a great starting position and Joey and Kyle, you know, take the floor, please. How would you talk to your own athletes on how they can maximize their starting position? You can five, five years ago, thanks, Joey. Uh, f- five years ago, my approach had been very different. Um, now, what I would say is if you can look at yourself in the mirror the way that you exactly are right now and can smile and, sing, and can say that you are content with how you look now and you can be content with how you want to look later in the future, then you're ready. Oh, that, that, that's a really good answer. Like, I, that's a fantastic answer. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise anyone to undertake a contest prep unless they were actually happy in themselves. Um, before they started because a lot of people don't understand. It's like, if you don't like how you look now, you wait till you get to the tail end of prep when you actually have pressure on you to look better and better and better. You're never going to be happy. If you hate how you look now, you'll probably hate it even more at the end of prep because there's an expectation around the way you have to look now. But in terms of advice, I would, I would give someone, obviously the first, the first piece of advice if they weren't a client is get yourself a good coach, someone who genuinely cares for you, someone who has your best interests at heart, obviously someone who knows what they're doing and knows how to get you the end result. And just leave no stone unturned. Take every step of the process seriously. If you want to be a good Z, every part of the process matters. 
You know, the first 25% of the prep, give 100%. The next 25%, give 100%. You can see where I'm going here. Give every phase of the process your best ability possible. And Joey, you, you wrote a post about this a while ago, right? So like people at the start of a prep, they're like, they might have eight sets programmed in a workout and they're like, oh, I'm going to go for 11. Well, that's like deviating from the plan by 30%. Mm. So you're not actually giving 100%. Correct. Like even like saying like, yeah, cool. I can do more. And yeah, that's cool. You probably should feel like you can do more because you've got, you've got more energy stores. But that doesn't mean that you should. I love the saying like, can you? Yes. Should you? That's, that's the question. And in that case, doing extra on top of what you're doing is still deviating from the plan. That's still not giving 100% because giving 100% comes down more to than just in the gym. It comes down to your mentality. It comes down to your discipline. Not doing the is actually showing discipline and sticking to the plan regardless of how you feel. Yeah, most definitely. And I think now would be an appropriate time. Should we move on to point number two or three of the off-season? Oh, I think Tiara's already got us on two, but two, mm-hmm. I've got I've got something interesting for two. And you wrote a post about this talking about your off-season approach mm-hmm. just recently. And I want to sort of like stoke the fire okay. <laughs> with this. <laughs> but um, uh, the, like the evidence suggests if you have a, like say you execute your recovery well and we're in the off-season, this isn't a first-time competitor. We're like multi-seasons here. Um, and you, you've executed a prep, you've done your recovery well. The evidence suggests, and the Eric Helms of the world are really pushing for this, where after you've tracked meticulously for a body composition outcome and gone through all that stuff, your ability to understand your own internal cues is completely disrupted and thrown out. And so my advice for like longevity, based on the evidence recommendation of like um, intuitive eating and learning how to like be intuitive again, but be in line with you, like an intuitive eating that exercises flexible restraint, not rigid restraint, um, where you can achieve weight management outcomes, but not track quantitatively is that you need to go through periods of like not tracking and like learning to listen to your body again to understand are these cues actually correct, right? Mm. So am I satiated? What does that satiation uh, feel like and then how does my body weight respond to that and what is what is happening with my body composition in line with what I perceive to be satiation and resensitizing that stuff mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and now I know that you wrote a post and you're like I want to get the most out of my improvement se- season oh Brandon's coming in um Mike. special guest yeah. Brandon Camter <laughs> so quick 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 quickly Good to uh, see you man well I, I actually to, to segue a little bit I think Brandon has similar thoughts. Yes, to and this. Brandon Not- recently just said as well, along the lines of intuitive eating, if you want to be the best bodybuilder. <laughs> his face just lit up. <laughs> He's like, my time to speak. Yes. <laughs> I love it. But I want to get Jack's thoughts, not Brandon's. So because like if we're talking about longevity of like longevity for the sport and optimal health, I'm not saying you need huge extended periods of time, but my recommendation would be, let's say you finish a prep, and you know that, and they've done the studies, people are up to about 65% out, even when they religiously weigh. They just, they just, they have, they're up to 65% out, right? So if we can bring that back to 80, 90% within a month or two, I would, my recommendation would be incorporate some periods of that in your mm-hmm. off season. Yeah, I, I find it very hard to disagree with that because you are, you are bespoking a lot of good reasoning <laughs> and, and stuff like that. And I think it's just like, uh, tracking um, quantitatively, it requires a lot of practice and 
due diligence and stuff like that. And just like tracking uh, qualitatively, so doing periods of intuitive eating, it's going to require potentially even more practice, especially for someone like myself who has been tracking quantitatively for so long. And I think psychologically, yeah, I can't, can't disagree with that. So, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm just I saying, know, no, no. I, yeah, I'm no. just saying, so like, if you like, at what point, I guess this is more of a question for Kyle, right? At what point is it the time, like as a coach, right? Do you then say someone's executed their recovery well, and it's like, right now let's get you resensitized to your internal cues. And we need to have, you know, three to four weeks of no detailed tracking and weighing. We're just going to list like work on resensitizing you with your internal cues. I don't have the answer to that. I think that the best way that I could uh, work around it would be to implement that stuff as you're going through the process of it. Uh, I don't think, and I could be completely wrong with this, so it's just my opinion. If we were to take a, a period of focusing purely on internal cues, um, it would be extremely difficult to shift that mindset from something that has been a learned behaviour for a long period of time. Um, what what I personally would do in practice is have people, and, and, and I was going to bring this topic up anyway because you guys are speaking so much about deviating from the plan and how, like, you know, doing more is not is not doing the plan, and that's, that's still deviating and which is exactly right you know like i i think it's really good that we can implement periods of time where we tell people that they they need to deviate part of the plan is deviating so the behavioral things that i will do with people and how we can prepare them for it is if we know that someone can go out and eat uh, from a restaurant with friends with family they can be social and they can get enjoyment from food without pulling out a phone to track it without stressing about how many calories without thinking about it you know that that process is autonomous it just happens you'll be able to look at a piece of chicken and know that it's got 30 grams of protein in it roughly and you can be okay with the fact that there is an estimate that's when you'll know that someone has reached that point of where they're getting used to their internal cues again uh, i believe though that if we implement that kind of stuff during the process there's less of a need to need to go from one end of the spectrum to the other afterwards we, it's, it's easier to shift um, the focus more into relying on those internal cues uh, later on if it's been you know, if it's been consistently planned along the way that the plan is you know this week I don't care if it's two weeks out or five months out that you are implementing time and it, it almost needs to be sporadic because if it's calculated um, then you're, you're you're still relying on that element of control that, that really throws us off after a competition when we don't have it anymore so it needs to be kind of sporadic from a coaching perspective where we go, hey, all right, uh, I actually feel like we need to go and have a meal out without using a scale and stuff like that um, and, and allow someone to just have the freedom and see what they do. I think there needs to be a little bit of... Um, is to be a little, of, uh, a little bit of observational learning from coaches to be able to just trust that the client is able to go and do their own thing. And then if they do do something that would negate any kind of positive benefit or would actually bring a, a negative response, like going and binging and having foods that are so different to usual and things that will push them backwards, then that is a sign that you need to implement more of that kind of stuff before continuing with the prep the way that you are. Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular content on our Instagram and YouTube channel. You can find those platforms by searching The Bodybuilding Dietitians. See you there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had a, 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 a minute <laughs> or so to think about uh, what you said, Carl, and, and what I said and what Alex said. And yet, what I'm about to say, it doesn't mean I don't agree with you guys whatsoever, but I guess I sort of, having just gone through literally this whole thing myself, I, I do see this as more of like a physiological 
response just as much as it is a psychological. Like Tara and I can both, and we've discussed this on previous episodes, we're eating our, let's say our lunch, but we're thinking about what we're gonna be eating for our next meal. And we know what's going on because we're, we're dietitians and we're engrossed in the scene. And we know that what we're thinking and how we're acting potentially isn't the most healthy thing to do, but we can't help it. Like it's food focus and it's more of a physiological response to having dieted for so long and being a very low body fat. And I think post-competition, the reason why I'm not personally too concerned with implementing a intuitive eating approach, because I know as my body fat comes up, my food focus will come down significantly to the point where I would happily incorporate periods of, of non-tracking and I have done before. But right now, the thought of not tracking um, obviously does provide me with a little bit of anxiety because I've been so used to tracking diligently for so long. So that's kind of my spiel. But isn't that the issue with intuition on either side of the spectrum? Someone coming straight out of a comp prep, obviously their hunger hormones are skewed. So someone might not be able to differentiate between a bowl of carrots and a massive bowl of ice cream, because mm. if, if it fills up the same volume in their stomach, you know, and their ghrelin's super high, they don't really know. But then I'd love for you to speak to this brand. And on the other end of the spectrum, where perhaps you have a bodybuilder very deep in his off season. And if he wanted to intuitively eat, it might actually hinder his progress mm. because he wouldn't be eating enough. I definitely fit in that boat. Yeah. But yeah. Brandon, go ahead. Yeah. Look, I think that intuitive eating versus a more structured uh, approach both have their place, but it's contextually specific. Um, I think that bodybuilding is explored a sport of extremes, both in the context of an off season and on, on season, obviously when energy is high and body fat is within a healthy realm, uh, as most of the males in particular have experienced, there is a dramatic decrease in hunger sensitivity and without tracking, it's quite possible that one will undereat and potentially uh, hinder their off-season progression and vice versa. In the context of a contest preparation, I would agree with Jack that it is partly psychological, but it is also a physiological response to the diet condition to have such a increase in hunger sensitivity plus delayed satiation, decreased food volume perception, etc. And I think it would be quite a, at least uh, as per my understanding and personal beliefs, it would be not the greatest uh, time to try and intuitively eat after a show. I think a lot of people finish a show and they say, okay, look, I want to be normal again. I'm going to try and intuitively eat. And I would say mm-hmm. intuitive eating is fantastic if you want to maintain, but this is not the time to do that because those adaptations pertain to hunger cues. They're persistent adaptations. And for good reason, if you've, mm-hmm. if you've existed mm-hmm. in an environment of low energy availability for such a time, it would be illogical for your body to say let's have one meal i'm gonna shut down all these cues it goes no 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 i'm going to make i'm going to keep these these cues heightened so that you put on enough fat mass that i'm better prepared for this when it occurs in future and those adaptations are persistent for quite some time even when body fat is back in a a a normal realm they will persist for some time and i I just think that it's if you want to participate in intuitive eating it's best to do that when you're in a eucaloric environment at a healthy body composition, because then those cues are as normal as they can be. And you can actually listen to your body. It's mm-hmm. just like trying to judge rate of perceived exertion in the off season in training is like doable. Trying to judge rate of perceived exertion in the dieting condition when central drive is low and RPE is high, is, is just higher. It becomes impossible. It's the same thing nutritionally. It's just like, it's not the, it's a hard environment to try and listen to your body. Because it's just an, yeah, it's, 
it's not a happy place for your body to be in terms of optimizing physiological function. My two cents. Thank you. No, that's cool. Yeah. So that's definitely an off season thing, not a recovery thing. So provided recovery is yeah. good. I would say, I would say uh, my recommendation wouldn't be letting anyone go near anything like that at least until six months minimum had passed after, mm-hmm. after their like shows have been completed. Mm-hmm. Probably nine would be like the soonest I'd look yeah. at implementing. And I think as a, as a sort of like a litmus test that you can do for yourself for anyone listening, it's like, if the thought of it gives you anxiety, <laughs> it's probably a sign that you should make a commitment to yourself in nine months time when things are higher to at least give it a go for a bit. And just mm-hmm. like, don't do it for the sake of, you know, testing your fear, do it from this, the place of observing from a curious place where your internal like cues are in relation to your input. So like, like how, like uh, how, how in tune am I with my internal cues at this point? Cause like Brandon said, if you're doing it at the back end of a prep, they're, they're screwed. Yeah. Awesome. Shall we, like we've been talking about the off season. Yeah. Before. We've spoken mm-hmm. heaps. Let's move. Let's <laughs> move. Next one. Move on. Yeah. Pre-prep. So, yeah. Let's move into pre-prep. So I, I think it's important to define pre-prep because people know the off season. People know what prep is. Some people might know what recovery is in mm-hmm. good depth, but what is the pre-prep phase? Kyle, do you want to talk about this thing as you present it? I was going to say Brandon can give a really, really good explanation if you start there, but I could. <laughs> Brandon can give a really, really, really good explanation on just about anything. <laughs> well, look, I, I can. I think it'll be really cool to hear, um, Brandon, your, your perspective of a pre-prep from a physiological side, um, and I can give it from a uh, psychological preparedness perspective, which is pretty, pretty similar to how we had uh, discussed previously about making sure that someone is in a position where they are ready, they are happy with themselves, they are content, they are able to uh, listen to their own internal cues, they're able to look at their body and not have any ties towards anxiety. Uh, I also think uh, from a literature perspective we've got to make sure that they're not exhibiting any uh, contraindications that pertain to eating disorder pathology uh, different dis- patterns of disordered eating uh, and, and experiencing any body image related or body dysmorphia uh, pathology that, that could present later on to being something that is going to cause a large cause for concern and a lot of uh, potential issues later on down the track pre-prep i believe is a time where we can really tell if someone is ready to get into it and and look People might not know yet, and that's what uh, the pre-prep phase is about. It's about getting somebody ready to be able to take on a, an off-season and then take on a prep afterwards as well, being able to be in a position where they, they can actually feel as though they're doing it at, at a spot of, I am doing this for an athletic achievement and a positively motivated goal, not a bucket listing that I want to tick off because I feel as though I just need to do it and I want to change something about myself really badly. And, and this and bodybuilding is a tool in which I can do that. Um, I can understand the motivation behind that. And there's many different drivers for motivation, but from, uh, from the perspective of us talking about the program, I think it's really important that we can distinguish that this is uh, athlete specific. We want it to make bodybuilding the sport that can bring some really good competitive athletes out, which means that we need to be protective of a lot of the different types of issues that can happen uh, throughout any kind of competitive engagement. I guess to touch on that, it basically sounds uh, like essentially a checklist where we can tick certain things off and say that someone is prepared to enter that preparation phase. Maybe even like a trial run. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't think we've put like a time frame on it. For us, Kyle created a pretty cool model where it's, 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 it's based on like meeting checkpoints. So it really is like how long is a piece of string. But if you were to say, you know, if you were to put a time bandwidth on it, Kyle, what do you reckon, eight to 12 weeks? 
I reckon about eight weeks is enough time to be able to accurately assess if there is something that could potentially be an issue. Um, and then you have an extra, most people will present something, and then you have an extra two to four weeks or so whereby you can easily, once that issue is identified, you can easily work on it and be able to get on top of it. And yeah. Brandon, from a physiological point of view. This is the easy part because you just, you lay down all the complex stuff. Uh, from a physiological perspective, it's just really taking time to make sure that you are, you're at an appropriate starting position in terms of body composition. So like pre-preparatory phase, I suppose it's much like a, a GPP phase you would, you would have with your, your athlete, with, with, uh, with real athletes. Uh, <laughs> <but> basically, <laughs> you know, you've come off, you've come off your, your off season. Oh, Let's man. make sure that you're sitting in an appropriate body composition, which means you might run a small pre-preparatory phase in terms of a, a, a dieting stint, which is always a great opportunity to refine the, uh, the individual in terms of their dietary practices, which means it's an easy transition from that phase into the contest preparation. Just like, you know, Thomas said, it's a good trial run. You yeah, get to Thomas. see how the athlete, Thomas, sorry. Yeah, mate. <laughs> see how the uh, athlete responds, you know, in the mix there. I wanted to, I wanted to mention something there, Brandon, you bring up a really, really good point. Um, when, when you said, you know, like faux athletes, Anyone that's, that's listening and thinking about getting into a prep or all that pre-prep phase and what that actually looks like, to put a definition of it, if you don't know what it is, it's that period of time that you're thinking about potentially doing a prep at some point in the future and you're going, I, I want to I see if I can. And I'm going to try changing around a few things with my diet and my training. And I'm going to start trying to commit a little bit more of myself because a comp is something that I would like to do at some point. We haven't made a, a distinct uh, commitment to that you might have but usually your, your behaviors will say something different so it's a time of where you're kind of umming and ahhing about it and you've got this like freedom to to nut out any little cracks and issues that might be there so when you're getting ready for for a comp and you're all right i know there's comp seasons around the end of the year and whatever you, you've got that period of a, a couple of months where you think oh you know i've got until june before i have to start really getting into the nitty-gritty of, of dieting down that period of time can essentially be your pre-prep and and we want to try to make sure that that can be calculated and managed and looked after as well. Yeah, I, I wanted to take this opportunity to, like we've all done some form of coaching here, all of us. And I think all of us have been faced with that uh, individual who comes to us. And it is very, very clear that they're not ready to enter a preparation phase, but they still are very, very insistent that they undertake it with you or that they're going to do it regardless. And I kind of wanted to open that as a question to all of you and, and basically ask like, what do you do in that scenario? And do you, do you try and persuade them out of it? Or do you, if they do undertake it, how do you mitigate any negative effects? Who wants to take the floor? Well, this is where um, this is where ethics really comes in, right? As coaches and as uh, sports nutrition practitioners, and Alex, you'll be really good at, at adding something in here. I think um, we, we all have a a duty of care to our clients, and we need to make sure that if someone is coming in, they're presenting all these behaviours. We actually feel as though, hey, these things are being presented. We can't take you through this process because we know that it's going to end up going to X, Y, and Z later on. It's kind of like if you if you were to walk into a doctor's office and you were to ask for a prescription medication for like pain relief and all you've done is just sprained your ankle and you're asking for endo and they're going to go, I can't do that. You're going to get addicted to it and it's going to be terrible for you. I think we all have a duty of care to have to recognize that as well. So if someone does come and they're so persistent on doing a prep, at the end of the day, it is 
someone's choice and we can never make someone's choice for them but we, we have to be respectful of our own due diligence and how we can practice in the meantime and, and that can just potentially cause a hell of a lot of danger not just for you your potential client but also for yourself as a coach and, and the kind of replications that that, that uh, opens up yeah look, well, let, let's give a, a few practical take-homes like what are a few things that clients need to be able to take off showing that yes i'm competent in order to enter into a comp prep. So what would you guys be expecting from a client to demonstrate before they actually enter into a competition phase? Joey, let's start. We haven't heard from Joey in a bit. Go for it. Okay. Um, so, so in terms of like what they need to be able to, I guess, accomplish or tick off, I think it's all contextual. It obviously depends on what that person's history is as well. If they've got, you know, a history of eating disorders, but they've still managed to tick off all these boxes, like, for example, like people who have disordered eating uh, habits always show different symptoms. And I think Kyle would agree with that is just because someone can tr- like can show that they can track every day for months on end, that still doesn't necessarily mean that they should be prepping because the disorder may be hidden somewhere else. But I will say in terms of like, I guess a benchmark is someone's ability to be able to track their food relatively meticulously for a long period of time someone who's been training for an extended period of time and just having a good relationship with food and the way they look, me and Kyle like touched on this earlier is if someone can't look in the mirror and be satisfied with how they look now, there's absolutely no way that they, I'm going to say it's very unlikely that they're going to be able to mentally tolerate taking themselves through a contest prep. So I'd say they, they are some boxes they need to tick off. Obviously there are other physiological factors as well is that person at an appropriate energy availability? How long have they been in an appropriate energy availability as well? Are their hormones steady? Um, if unsure, you need to get blood work. And yeah, I would say I would say those, those are some key points. I, I know that these guys will elaborate further as well. I also think it's important to make sure, I think as bodybuilders, it's important that we to our physique. And I know it sounds a little bit funny. I think that's an important piece, whether it's on season or off season that you attachment to it rather you approach it that because a logification of your training and nutrition environment when you can accept that then you can get contest lean and understand that it is a function of contest preparation and then when you return back to your off-season composition you're okay with it but if you have an emotional attachment to it you're going to bind your identity to the way you look at x time contest time off-season time it's going to be problematic you need to be okay with the fact that you know, both serve function and leave it at that. Mm-hmm. You can just that. I would say that a healthy ish way uh, to approach it. Excellent. All right. So let's move into the meat, which is comp prep. And I think uh, one thing that we haven't addressed yet is that third point that you brought up Alex at the beginning, which is potentially areas that might go against the evidence, which we have had to deal with potentially. Yeah. I reckon this is where, we, this is where it's going to pop its head up. So this will be interesting. I'm, I'm hanging out for it. So what, what shall we start with though? I think, I think the listeners all have a, a basic understanding of what the contest preparation phase might entail, but obviously it is the ultimate goal is to achieve the conditioning required to be on stage and also maintain as much lean body mass as possible. So shall we potentially commence with that third point? Yeah. I'm going to sort of like bow out of this and say when I was prepping and when I was like prepping other people and there weren't even like insurance policies for it at the time. So it's like, 
Fortunately, this is like past seven years ago now. So I, the liability period doesn't apply. Um, but uh, this was like, I prepped 10 years ago now. This is how long it's been. And like, I got pretty lean, but the condition over time has gotten a lot better. And these were the days where people thought like, that like an eight to 10 week prep was normal. And you would just- well, fortunately, people still do. But. Yeah, but I would say a lot more people are willing to accept that it yeah. might be 20 plus weeks or something like that. Mm-hmm. There was That was unheard of. And the- like the, the knee-jerk reaction to if, if someone had said a 20-week prep, people would have told you to just like get fucked. They would have been like, no way am I doing that. That's horrible. This coach can get me done in that period. And all you do is crash diet, probably average 30,000 steps a day because you're having to walk two hours a day. And you would not achieve BK conditioning. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Like, and the conditioning like wasn't there. And so my experiences, like I, I did that. I did a bro diet. It was pretty good. Like I still had... I didn't get ultra low carb. And then so people would come, for instance, and I had someone being like, okay, I'm 12 weeks out and they were in good shape, so it was good. And then all of a sudden with six weeks to go, they're like, oh, I've just got some feedback from the judges and they like my legs. So I'm no longer doing physique. I need to do bodybuilding. And, I, and, I, and I'm still keen to do it. And I'm like, oh my God, like this is, this is like crazy. We've got six weeks to get you probably like three to four kilos lighter than what we were aiming for. Yeah. So... Like it was, it was the Wild West. Kyle, you remember those days? I haven't forgotten. I think they're still pretty present, to be honest. <laughs> it was worse than what it is now. Like I, I was talking to a coach the other day, and they were like, their client messaged me and was like, the client's competing for physique, and the client's like, oh, you know, I'm 21 weeks out now. I've lost four kilos. Like they're pretty lean. They're like, do you think I'll make it? And the coach was like, in their head, they were thinking, the response was going to be. Yeah, but you're probably going to hurt. And this is a male physique competitor with 20 weeks out who's probably like 11% body fat. And I'm like, in the back of my head, I'm like, and they're not. Like, they don't have to hurt really at all. So that's a nice segue into what should competitors expect as a realistic timeline depending on their category. So, Brandon, what should competitors expect as a bodybuilding and figure competitor? Oh, look, I mean, look, the specific timeline is going to be really dependent on the starting position of the athlete. But when you start to get into categories like figure and bodybuilding, the conditioning potential is borderline infinite. They both need to be very, very lean. Um, I would say 20 weeks is probably on the shorter side. But generally speaking, 25 weeks would be a general average duration for myself. Occasionally, we have to go above 30. But anything over 35, I would say you probably didn't manage the pre-preparatory phase overly well. But I would say that there is a general consideration for a potentially longer contest preparation for the females, um, simply because obviously females maintain their healthy body composition at a higher body fat percentage versus men. However, by the time bigger women get to today's level of conditioning, their sex-specific fat distribution is essentially nil. And what that means is they're basically at the same body fat percentage as the males, but they have a longer road, you know, to, to go down in terms of, uh, you know, relative to the, basically the, the total amount of fat they have to lose relative to their total body mass, essentially. And also females are a little bit more delicate when it comes to managing the side effects of the dieting condition. So for those individuals, you know, you're probably going to go up towards a sort of 30-ish week mark as a general. And men's physique, the conditioning is essentially symmetrical to bodybuilding these days. Yeah, I think one of the biggest misconceptions with prep that I've seen is just people really do underestimate how lean you have to get, especially mm. with the standard nowadays. And they, they're calling themselves shredded at, I don't know, in the off season. And then, or they might have one lean body part where their chest might have a few striations at the beginning of prep, but they're, 
their glutes are, are very, very soggy. And uh, they think that they're just going to be able to coast in there. And I mean, ideally, there should be an element of ease to the beginning of comp prep, but uh, they, they're stepping on stage potentially at 10 or 15 weeks out, which is something I see quite often. Does happen. It does happen. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the so are there other categories then? So we go fitness, physique, a sports model, and yeah. then into bikini. Yeah. So what, what what would you guys say are the timeframes there, Kyle? Well, I'm going to pass this one over to to you, Brando, again because I think you, you're doing a lot more uh, competitors than than what I am in this regard. So take it away. Yeah. Well, I will say that when it comes to competitors, obviously my kind of uh, niche is more towards figure and bodybuilding but i mean fitness fitness moving down into bikini um i would say that most people would be for bikini you know i'd say around 20 weeks but sometimes you you know you can pull that down closer towards sort of 15 weeks just because but again we're talking icm bikini icm bikini is a little bit softer compared to ifb bikini not just a little bit anymore (laughs) yeah they're very bikini is very hard like you might as well be fitness and then you're probably getting in towards that 20 25 week realm pretty Mm. close to it anyway yeah yeah, I think, Tiara, you, you're also a good person to answer that. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, without a doubt. Well, as a competitor over the years who's started off in ICN bikini and then transitioned into IFBB bikini and ICN fitness, they are completely different, absolutely. And both definitely require a very different level of leanness. Yeah, and different level of muscularity. But I, I want to know, because touching on what we spoke about at the very beginning of the podcast on how one of the mistakes competitors often make in their off seasons is unfortunately gaining too much weight. Do you think that someone could make the argument that the reason why people need such a long contest preparation is because they've gained too much weight in their off season? And I really want to hear your guys' opinions on why is it that natural competitors, we need to lose like 10 to 15 to 20 kilograms of weight during a competition phase to step on stage at maybe the same body weight or just maybe like 500 grams or one kilogram heavier, like Brandon, physiologically, can you give your opinion on that? Yeah, I think it's possible that some individuals do get a little bit too soft in the off season, but really that's what the pre-preparatory phase is for. But I think really what it comes down to is our our enhanced counterparts have rather uh, favorable nutrient partitioning capacities when it comes to the to their ability to liberate energy from fat mass because obviously they can use uh, pharmacology to aid with that and their ability to retain or even build muscle mass in the dieting uh, condition. Whereas us naturals, we have pretty average nutrient partitioning. Um, So for those that don't know, nutrient partitioning refers to when we're onboarding uh, nutrient, what we're doing with it, we're storing it as muscle, you know, glycogen, fat, et cetera. And when we're liberating it, what compartment it's coming from, just so everyone's aware. Um, and when we diet, obviously the, adap- the adaptation that we accumulate means that we have even worse nutrient partitioning. So we're definitely not building lean mass in the dieting condition. And there's probably going to be, going to be some level of obligatory uh, muscle loss, unfortunately, at the end of the contest prep. And I think that obviously to attenuate that, we really need to make sure that we're catering for a decline in the rate of loss, the leaner we get. And because we have to factor that in, that's why it takes so, so long. You know, you're just not going to be able to pull off 400 grams of fat mass a a week when you're going from 
first line in the glute to having a set of glutes like a rib cage. Like you have to tread so slowly and so carefully. Whereas, yeah, the enhanced guys, they'll they'll meet our conditioning, but they'll do it in 15 weeks. No worries. So I, I guess, I guess to, to, to clarify that even further, if you're still a little bit uh, on the edge about what, what Brendan was saying, uh, what he means is that trend makes it a lot easier. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I wanted to add is that this, this really, I believe, depends on the length of time that somebody has also been competitive for. So is this their first prep versus their fifth or sixth prep? You know, we've, we've all done multiple shows and I know at least from my perspective, the, the more shows that I've done as I get later on into, into my competitive seasons, it becomes so much easier for me to maintain a certain body composition without trying to as much. So if you have prepped for multiple seasons and you've taken the long-term macro cycle approach to, to dieting and, and competing, what happens is over time you build up this, this different type of physiology, physiological response whereby your body becomes almost way more responsive to different types types of petitioning levels in which you're giving to it. Uh, and we were speaking about this uh, with you the other day, Jack, weren't we, about how because you've been doing it for a very long time, it's almost as though you're hyper-responsive now to a high intake, to a low intake, your body like wants to change. Yeah, definitely. That's certainly something I've experienced uh, towards the end of prep. And right now, as I, I've already introduced quite a significant amount of energy back into my diet and my body doesn't, has kind of hitting plateaus every few days in terms of body weight. And I'm just having to keep ramping that food up mm. I would. i'm enjoying it at the moment so <laughs> who knows how long it'll last for though <laughs> i um i tiara and i were talking about this the other day and i also think it's to do with the fact that the standard of conditioning is getting more and more lean as we progress and so it's like we've got these and we've got these evidence-based strategies right like we've got diet breaks we've got refeeds we know that they at least help us with adherence we know that protein especially if we've got good pulsatile protein doses at the optimum threshold level. You like that, Brandon? Boom. He likes it. If you're hitting that, if you're always, if you're resistance training, we know that resistance training and like good resistance training is like really good for offsetting any declines in metabolic rate. So protein and resistance training are our two things. We know that if we're mindful of energy availability and so we're trying to attenuate um, low EA as much as possible, or at least be mindful and aware of it in a way that we're not just completely disregarding it. Hey, we know we're going to be low, but you're not going to be as low as you need because we've got these strategies. It's like, wow, that didn't hurt as much getting this lean. And so it's like, cool, now we're going to get leaner. And that's sort of like what's been happening over time. And so it may not be, hey, you might only get on stage 500 grams leaner, but you are 500 grams heavier, but you might be like, two or 3% leaner as well. And as Brandon was saying, the difference in that two to 3%, if you've got that one line in your glute the last time, and now you've got a full rib cage in your glutes, that's pretty significant fat loss, especially at that tail end. Mm -hmm. So that, that's my two cents as an observer of the last 10 years, not, not a participant. Yeah. Yeah. So apart from just the timeline that competitors can expect, let's touch on some other aspects of competition prep. There you have it, guys. Thank you for joining us for episode one of our Comprep Roundtable. You can stay tuned for episode number two, which we'll be releasing in the next few days next week. And as always, if you did enjoy this episode, please remember to repost it onto your social media stories, 
tag myself, tag Tierra, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and of course tag Alex, Kyle, Joey, and Brandon as well. And we shall catch you guys next week.